in any acquisition, anyone that I've ever been a part of, almost entirely, I can probably say entirely, has some kind of a earnout provision. Mm-hmm. It's, it's called right, and, and where the the and and the the more critical you are as the principal of the business you're selling, the longer typically that is, and the more your payout is a function of you delivering some things along the way because they know it's you is very valuable. So you got to make some kind of effort to transition that. And so, you know, for me, that was effectively my earnout, and, and by, and that's how they got the knowledge and the value out of what it is they were paying me was that I was enabling their team and I was still there to kind of help uh, along the way. We are back with another episode of the Cold Star Project, the uh, podcast about the unexpected challenges of scaling. We have been punched in the face so that you don't have to be. And my guest today is Peter Hoskins, um, founder of Rare Curve, which we'll talk about a little bit, but I wanted him on because he has bought or created and sold several different kinds of businesses. And the one we're going to focus on today, although we may dance around and talk about other experiences that he's had, uh, is a process-based business. It wasn't a business with actual people in it, for example, uh, other than himself. And so he was able to package this up and sell it. And uh, this story, I believe, will be valuable for you. So, Peter, thanks for being here. Oh, man, I'm, I'm a huge fan of yours, Jason. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks. Uh, thanks for letting me be here. Good deal. So, uh, tell us a little bit about the business that you sold. Um, I mean, what was it? How did you create it? So, uh, accidental consulting business. Um, after I sold my uh, – I had done a lot of technology, software, kind of traditional startup, if there's such a thing as traditional now in – in uh, in startup world, venture funded style businesses, and then after I sold my the fourth one, uh, people started knocking on the door, other entrepreneurs, and said, "Hey, man, what what do you know? Uh, what can you share with me? Uh, you got any secret sauce that 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 I can have?" and and started uh, consulting and helping, and uh, and I also had some of the investors and VC firms and whatnot that were referring their portfolio. Uh, CEOs to me to say, hey, you got to meet Peter, why don't you guys talk, see if there's something to do. So I kind of stumbled into a, a consulting business and started uh, running and over time started codifying that into the work that I was doing and just talking to people uh, and then little projects here and there, turning that into actual structured kind of offers or structured okay. processes. And so I, I kind of had a process, but the business of consulting had zero process. So I tried to be a little bit more efficient other than just getting on the phone with people and deliver more value to them and try to actually be, just be helpful. And, uh, and so that kind of turned into some products and service-based offerings and uh, workshops that, uh, that when people would call or knock on my door, I'd, uh, I'd say, yeah, I can help you in these ways. And this is kind of how that would work. And and so there was an almost an asset. I took the mm-hmm. intellectual property that I had and turned it into something more tangible, a schedule, uh, tools, uh, templates, uh, a process, and, uh, and uh, I was delivering it that way. Okay. So what I'm hearing is, first of all, you had a, a distribution channel of leads coming to you from your network, right? Mm-hmm. Very important. That, that business would not have existed without that. And That's so absolutely true. I am interested in a few minutes when we discuss the sale of this, uh, you, you would have to duplicate that for the seller, right? And you can't just rip off a piece of Peter and give it to that guy and say, okay, now all you uh, VC 
incubator people go over there, right? Because a piece of me is over there. So we'll, we'll cover that. Um, and then also I hear that you are productizing the service. You know, you've seen, you've seen several things happen again and again and again, that people kind of show up at 4th and Elm and want to go to 73rd and Wintergreen. And yep. you're like, okay, I'm going to build the bus that takes them from there to there. And look, they keep showing up with these people in a similar position. So you're not having to reinvent the wheel after a while. Okay, so you, how, how did you go about documenting these processes? I mean, wh when was it, can you, can you pin down like how long into the business where you were doing this again and again, where you went, oh, I'd better write this stuff down. Uh, probably the fifth time I, I uh, cause I'm a slow uh, mm -hmm. learner evidently. <laughs> It took after doing the same thing five times in a conference room in front of a team of a of a new company, uh, an early stage company. Uh, I, I realized this is this is wasteful. It's dumb. You know, I'm repeating the same things. A lot of the basic kind of fundamentals of what it is that I'm doing. And so that's when I tried to say, all right, how can I have a kind of a I, effectively my product culminated in a workshop. And so I all of that preparatory work, all of that. Mm thinking and vocabulary and process and explanation and centering their mind in on what it is we were going to tackle and what the outcomes were that we were shooting for and just all of that kind of emotional, psychological, informational stuff that I was repeating over and over and over again live in person, having to get on an airplane a lot of times to go and do that. Uh, that's, that was kind of where I first started. So, all right, I'm just going to record that and write that stuff down, whatever the right form was to deliver the message. And uh, and so it took me relatively soon, but it, it was more because I didn't want, I was, wor I was like working harder than I wanted to and mm -hmm. needed to, uh, and, uh, at different, different parts of the process. So that was kind of first okay. big tranche was that, that preparatory work and so five clients in, I got okay. smart. So, and you were documenting using what tools? I, I really Google Docs to start. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I I literally I, I well, and that's that's true. And I also had a lot of tools from previous businesses and things that I had done that weren't necessarily uh, genericized into a template or something mm -hmm. that could just be copy and paste, you know, duplicated. But the the premise was there. So I went back and said, okay, how did I do this? How did I actually uh, you know map out you know uh, you know an MVP, you know, minimum viable product. Process. What did we do? And I tried to come up with the, the milestones and the sequence, and because the sequence is critical. Do this before you do that, you know, so you're not putting cart in front of horse and things like that. So I got a lot of that knowledge just written down, very much in an outline form to start. And then um, because I don't like to write, and I surely didn't want to write volumes and volumes uh, of words on it, I started recording me talking through different kind of sections. So Roman numeral one, I would talk through that and have a, just a very simple, low production value video. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was high, it was high, you know, content value. And, uh, and that's where I started. And over time, that kind of got a little bit more organized. And some of the videos were a little too dense. And so you break those into two and you learn that over time. And um, and uh, so, yeah, really simple, and it it it, it does not need to. Be, it didn't need to be any more complex than that. It's essentially the the knowledge and the outcome that the person is looking for. They want their problem solved, and, right. and they want their question answered. And they, you know, all the kind of the fluff and and uh, and wrapping around that is really of no concern. Right, right. I mean, my first sales training product back in 
2011, 2012 was with my wife's 360p webcam on a tiny little laptop. Cause that's what we had. Yeah. I don't think HD had been invented yet, but there was no 720. <laughs> oh my gosh. But people loved the content. And so I, I want to hit this again. Um, cause you pointed it out and I know from the coaching world, especially that I've been in, uh, for, for many years, a lot of coaches get hung up on the idea that, Oh, it has to look great and have this high production value. And also how dare I give them a video instead of doing the, the carnival song and dance myself, right. Individual. And I, I actually got stuck with yeah. this for a long time too, back at say 20, 2013, probably all the way through 2014. Um, so for the three, four years I was, delivering content live that I should have been delivering by video because I felt that the the buyer deserved the mm -hmm. live performance right mm -hmm. you know it's like they came to see Metallica at the concert not the double live album you know so so just tell us a little bit about your experience in giving folks these videos and and Google Docs and that after you'd created them and their reception to it so I think that there's a little bit of a variability in the market, the nature of your audience, but when you're dealing with businesses, right? Um, substance over, over sizzle uh, all day long. And so as long as it doesn't look, you know, crappy, and, and even actually more important, the audio is good. Mm -hmm. um, almost more important that you have, you know, good audio it doesn't have right. to, you don't have to go and spend 2000 bucks for a mic, but you, you have to spend a hundred bucks for a mic and it has to sound good. Right. So, you know, a lot of times people will have like a light behind their head and it'll mm -hmm. turn them into a silhouette. So just the video quality has to be doable and, and whatnot in the business, in the business world. But very quickly they, they jump, they jump right to the content because it's essentially you that they're buying your knowledge, mm -hmm. your expertise, your, your expertise that they, that they want. And you're not in the entertainment business, which now, if, if you're have a very much a consumer style mm -hmm. uh, uh, offer, which you know uh, this wouldn't work. Like in YouTube is a fantastic mm -hmm. example. The production quality for a just a standard issue YouTuber is pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it it it's you know it's shot well, it's lit well, the audio is good. There's actually edits and whatnot uh, that go in, and but there's more of an entertainment context there not a content substance context. Right. So as long as kind of you're, uh, you know, you, you deliver something that is viewable and hearable, you're good to go. Then you then just tell them, okay, here's the process and you're, you're the authority. So you present yourself as the authority and that's kind of how I did it. I said, all right, so we have this, we have this workshop and I charge 50 grand for my workshop. So it wasn't cheap. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of times that they're going to think, I need the dude, man. I, I need you in the room because I'm spending a lot of money. But the dude can also stand up and be the authority and say, here's how we're going to get started. I'm going to send you a bunch of preliminary work, this homework that you and your team, you need to go through. You must go through this before we even get to the, to the workshop. And I'm going to deliver this to you in, in video and documents and a variety of tools and, and questions and things that you'll have to think through. And when you go through that process and you can lead that, then you'll then kind of, and I would have a little checkpoint where they would effectively articulate some of the outcomes of what it is that we went through in the mm -hmm. preliminary work so that I could be more informed and kind of see where their thinking was, how progressed they were. And if they didn't do the work, they didn't watch the videos, because I know, yeah. I hit them up and say, okay. we're, we're going to have to reschedule if you don't, and because it's necessary. 
And so you just essentially move the focus to the outcome of what it is that they want hmm. versus the stuff that they're getting in your service offering, which are videos and documents and templates and things like that. They want the outcome. Mm -hmm. So don't just, you just stay focused on that and then getting them that outcome requires them to watch some videos. Okay. So as long as you set the expectations correctly and keep yourself as the authority in the driver's seat, then you'll be fine. Yeah. And, and staying focused is. on their outcome saying, here's how you get there. Here's right. how you get that thing you want. Oh, cool. Okay. I'll do that. I mean, they'll walk through fire, you know, if, mm -hmm. if, if you, if you get them to that outcome, regardless of, of what it is. So. Right. Right. Yeah. I was uh, chatting with a, a new friend of mine. He's a principal data scientist for um, a major, <laughs> major AI company. And uh, he's, I was, I was saying, um, we were looking at developing a, uh, some kind of machine learning app. And I said, do we want to plug in something where it, it, there's a delay in delivering the results? Because in uh, consumer-based online um, solutions, you, you click a button and they'll have literally programmed in like a 15 second delay to make the thing look like it's doing something. And yet it actually solves it in a few milliseconds, right? Yeah. Um, and and uh, so I'm wondering if, you know, do we need this for here, especially if we're charging, you know, like, you, you know, in the, in the five-figure range, right? And he said, Jason, if a, if a bank or a financial institution is losing $2 million a month due to fraud, they want the solution now. <laughs> they want it fast and they're paying yeah. for it fast. So, so there, there's a lot of head trash floating around in oh. coaches, in my mind, in coaches' minds, in business owners' minds, in everybody's mind about uh, what these expectations should be like. And it's really important to remember that you are not your customer. Yeah. <laughs> and it, yeah, it's, it's, it's an eye opening experience. I mean, I've been doing this for eight years and I'm still learning stuff, right? Like I'm still surprised or uncovering new limiting beliefs and going, how long has that been kicking around in there? Right. Yeah, so, dude, you're totally right. The, yeah. This is a, this is a big one. The greatest gift you can give your client is the speed to result. Hmm. If, if you can align everything that you do with getting them the result that they want the fastest and easiest way possible return on effort, you know, mm -hmm. just as quick with the least amount of effort to get the maximum return, you're doing them the greatest favor in the world. And, but you talk about a limiting belief and it, it, it's, it's real because it comes mm -hmm. from this kind of legacy consulting bill by the hour. I need to do the work to create the value mindset that is flatly a limiting belief in so many coaches and consultants and experts minds because I have to do something in order to generate the value. And, and that's, and if you sell it that way, if you just think mm -hmm. about that, I'm going to sell you by the hour or by the project or some, you know, some kind of a fee associated with me doing work as opposed to selling you, I'm going to get you this result. Then you have now associated what somebody is buying with you doing work. And now they believe that they need that you, you believe and they need to believe that that needs to be validated. Right. Heck, in, in the old school consulting world, there's a term for it. It's called thump factor. Mm -hmm. This is legit. It's yep. when you hire a consultant, you want them to plop a huge stack of paper in the report on the conference room table, table and make a big thump noise right. to validate that you the actually investment. did the work. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's great, great reminder for everybody. <laughs> yeah. And conversely, when you, you know, when you're selling the result, mm -hmm. they want the result. So as long in the least amount of effort that you and they put into getting the result, the better, everybody's happier that way. Right. Okay. Just remember to sell it that way. 
yeah. itself based on yeah, the results, set up those expectations. Okay. And I, I think that's a competitive advantage also to be able to say to the prospect, uh, I have designed this and we've gone through it many times with companies similar to yours to get you to the end result as quickly as possible. Yeah. You know, the least yeah this is a huge limiting factor in a lot of coaching and consulting business. I'll have a good business mm -hmm. and it'll be you know, a hundred or $200,000 a year, right? They're fully employed. They've got a good salary. They're working for themselves. It's all good. But it's this, this limiting belief is the thing that holds them back from doing a hundred thousand dollars a month mm -hmm. because the value, if they can get to a hundred thousand a year, I absolutely know they can get to a hundred thousand a month mm -hmm. because they validated that there's a problem that they can solve. The market exists. Number two, they validated they actually have the ability to solve that problem because people are paying them six figures to do that then it's a function of scale and leverage and, and doing things in a different way to mm -hmm. not just do that in a year, but do that in a month. Right. Yep. And folks uh, who have paid attention to this podcast have heard me say ad nauseum, <laughs> the, the way you do things now is not the way you need to be doing them to get to the next revenue plateau. You need yeah. to change it up. It's not more of the same. So, uh, so here you are, you've created this, uh, this consulting accidental consulting business that's cranking people through, you've productized the business, you've, uh, you've documented those processes, you've optimized them because you've been through them, you've iterated them a bunch of times, got a good set of videos, a good set of, uh, that's going to be interesting to find out how you transfer that too. Uh, they, I guess they would have to reshoot it, but let's see. Uh, so how did you know this thing was is saleable? What criteria and conditions existed that made you go? I mean, also there was an emotional component, I know. So let's dig into that. Well, yeah. So let's answer the first question. How did I know it was saleable? So I happened to um, get into a, uh, so I, I was focused on startups and they all were pretty much all of them were venture funded. And so, and there's a, and I had some relationships in that community and they then start talking and, and referrals started coming to me and I had a couple of fairly sizable pockets in two very, very large venture capital firms of clients. Cause they were all saying, dude, you gotta, you gotta work with, you gotta work with Peter. He can help you. You know, he totally helped us. You know, you got, you know, so I, I kind of had these little centers of gravity within two mm -hmm. different, very large venture firms. And it was from that, that they, the, those venture firms started seeing results in their portfolio companies, which is good because they're making money. They, they call me up and say, hey man, can we, can we do a deal where we kind of direct our portfolio to you and kind of refer you or you know, how would that work? And, and mm -hmm. why not that they wanted a revenue cut by any stretch. They, they actually, not at all. It was just more of a, how right. can we organize this a little bit? Um, and, uh, and so I kind of started doing more and more with their, with their portfolio companies. And, and it, it just kind of naturally progressed. And this is to where it gets to your second question of the emotional component of it. I, uh, the work that I was doing was great, but I hated it. And I mean, honestly, I, I felt like it be, turned into a bit of a grind mm -hmm. um, because even though I was able to uh, standardize and, and create leverage in the what it is that I was doing, uh, I still was traveling a fair amount more than I wanted to. I was top tier on United and top tier on American at the same mm -hmm. time, you know, which is kind of nuts. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and the nature of the work 
became a little, um, it just wasn't as life-giving as it was when I initially started. And so I kind of started falling out of love with this. Mm -hmm. And the, my client, those kind of, those, well, they weren't my client, but they, uh, the VC firms, they were very interested in me doing more of it. So we started having a conversation about how can I empower their team? Because they had us kind of a support infrastructure to help their portfolios succeed. Mm. Um, and, uh, and that became the kind of genesis of a conversation about me enabling them to deliver my workshops and do that over time. Okay. And they loved that because it put them more in control. And it kind of also is the segue into all the other questions that you had of how the heck did you pull that off and, and whatnot. Okay. So criteria is repeated paying customers <laughs> driven by influencers. Uh, you've got a system and you don't want to do it anymore. So at this point, I mean, I would have recommended that you slice off the piece that you like the most right? Um, delegate everything else. And this is a mistake I made in my sales training business back in say 2012, 2013. I should have hired sales trainers to deliver these live sessions that I was selling like crazy at the mm -hmm. time instead of having me do them all, right? And, and But I had it in my head. Oh, they're hiring me. I, I deliver it my way. I should have been comfortable with those sales trainers delivering the content and adding their 20, 30% and their unique point of view on it. And it would have been fine. But stupid you know right <laughs> now it's you know it's many years later now and, and I, I know better but um and you know you have the you have their that vc team delivering the workshops and doing the the grunt work that you don't like and then uh you come in and look at the top level of the projects and go okay i like this one i want to dig into this a little bit right i don't care about this one you guys handle all that one right that, yeah. so why didn't you do that for example that's the question I, it's exactly what i did do Jason. okay okay <laughs> yeah that's and, and it was over a three-year period so it was ah. partly to relieve me of having to do the stuff that i really didn't want but, to, mm -hmm. but i still needed to be engaged in the transition of this process um, over to the internal team so that they could effectively do what it is that I was doing. Right. Um, and me also be able to kind of dive in and, and help in some little sticky points and, mm -hmm. and, or help with, uh, with clients that were really interesting and cool that I, that I wanted to participate with. So uh, that's exactly the process. So it was partly because three of <laughs> three years, but that was, you know, it was a, there was a, there was a big payday. They essentially mm -hmm. came, they, they bought it through a retainer. And that retainer was really big. And the amount of time I had to put into it was really small. Uh, you know, and so the alternative hmm. to do it uh, kind of more, uh, if I wanted to keep doing it, it would do, I would have to have done something similar to what you described. I'd have to hire people and I'd have to train them and I'd have to go through the same three year or some period of time process to enable others to do what it is that I was enabling the, uh, the uh the other company the, the vc firm staff to do and so it just uh you know and that's a trade-off you, you know you take millions of dollars for sure or do you you know have to di and 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 i'm not a lot of work and i can then go and actually set my sights on doing other things or or do i take it all on myself and and try to uh, try to build this up so and i chose a, an easier path partly because of that i kind of fell out of love with the nature yeah. of some of that work and um, I know it's, it's hard to get other people to, you know, to scale up um, and do things effectively as you can a lot of times. And 
And so, um, I know I took the bag of cash. Well, I don't blame you. <laughs> so here you are, you've got now, some people might come back and say, well, that's all great for you, Peter. Uh, you had this sweetheart deal with, uh, with the VC, um, groups and that. And, uh, what could, what could somebody in a similar situation do? Because see, you in the in the process of answering that last question you have answered a question i had earlier about what do you do about the videos well there's no rebranding that needs to be done in this situation right mm -hmm. they can use your videos mm -hmm. let's say this is peter he he created this system he worked for us but you know it's like uh uh i don't know working with a, a shark the sharks have these things from shark tank where um they, I've been to one, Damon Johns came to town a year or two ago, and you're not working with him, right? You're working with members of his team, right? And now uh, Robert Herkovich is, uh, his is coming to town now, you know? And okay, you know, I, it's not for me. I, I, I went to just to see what they were doing. But uh, so you could have you done it that way. But if you had sold it to another private individual, there would have been some, not hurdles, but other longer term things, uh, you know, there are a number of advantages the way you did it. <laughs> the VC people were not cash poor and they weren't worried about cash flow, right? So they could afford to pay you every month or whatever it was that, that you had as your, uh, your retainer agreement, right? Without worrying about it. If you had sold to a private individual and this was their main business, maybe you were doing a leverage buyout or something, right? And they were paying you a chunk. Now you're dependent on them and their workability and, uh, right? And it's risky. They probably would have had to reshoot all the video uh, as themselves. Well, here's um, the thing. So maybe over not. Time, think. So over time, what we were able to do, because remember, these are companies that grow up and I help them through mm -hmm. a stage and then they go to another stage and, mm. Um, and, and so over time, it wouldn't just be my face and okay. there wouldn't need to be this pitch of, mm. Hey, there's this guy, Peter, and he, he developed this methodology and we're going to teach it to you. Right. We were able to feather that over time to where I still was involved and around, but uh -huh. the people that they were interacting with on an ongoing and daily basis were the the staff of the VC firms. Mm -hmm. Right. And so they become a very, they became a very relevant coach in this process. And I became like, uh, you know, you know, additive or, you know, icing to it. And then over, okay. and then over time, when you re-record those, the person who's on staff, it becomes the face. And so over right. it is a bit of a blend so that mm. you can soften that. And, and, and so it really in any acquisition, anyone that I've ever been a part of almost entirely, I can probably say entirely has some kind of a earnout provision. Mm -hmm. it's, it's called right yeah. and, and where the the and and the the more critical you are as the principal of the business you're selling the longer typically that is and the more your payout is a function of you delivering some things along the way because they know it's you is very valuable so you got to make some mm -hmm. kind of effort to transition that and so you know for me that was effectively my earnout, and and by and that's how they got the knowledge and the value out of what it is they were paying me was that i was enabling their team and i was still there to kind of help uh, along the way so okay. so and, and that's true though in really any other if you're selling any of the software businesses i was a part of there was an earnout provision sometimes yep. they can be as short as a year but um especially if you know you as the ceo are not critical day-to-day -day in the operations but let's say you're the the primary engineer technical resource 
you know, the guy or girl who knows everything about how everything works, they're going to lock you up because if yep. you leave, then their value leaves and they're not going to just let that happen. Right. So, so that's how you can kind of make that transition more seamless. Any, any, any sale for the most part of a private company, especially a smaller one is going to have some kind of a transition period where part of the payment is a function of meeting certain things along the way. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's revenue or, or fulfilling certain obligations. So as the seller, how do you make sure that you don't buy yourself a job by doing this? Um, well, I have in fact done that. My first company, I did that. Sold a company to, uh, to IBM and bought myself a job. Um, and, there, and that's not a bad thing, assuming things are um, you know, aligned, motivations are mm-hmm. aligned. They, there's a name for it, it's called an aqua hire. Mm-hmm. They'll buy the company, but effectively they're buying the company so they can get the employees. And that happens all the time. It's not about revenue or customers or even the technology as it exists right now. They want to buy a team of people that know something that mm-hmm. can, that can, that are leading a market or have some insight or genius that they want on their team to mm-hmm. continue to forge. Right. So that's an okay thing if that's what you want. And, right. um, and, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Uh, and, and really can be a cool thing. I've got, a friend of mine sold a business for, for it was a, a great a database business a long time ago for $20 million, right? Huge win by any measure. Yeah. But his, he then stayed on at that company and made $200 million hmm. over the course of the next decade. So because, you know, he got stock and, and options and, and became a, big, a part of a bigger thing. So nothing wrong with buying yourself a job. If, if, if you, you can arrange for. it like that. My yeah. fear would be getting sucked into more and more daily operations of that business uh, while wanting to move on to the next thing, right? Uh, yeah. that, that's what I would want to extract. That's in, that's in your terms because you, you have to realize the buyer needs to get value out of buying your company. Right. They have to, and that's only fair and reasonable. And they're going to have some expectations or requirements on how that's going to happen. And you just do the best job that you can in boxing that in a way that you're comfortable with and, and feel is reasonable. So that you can go, okay, for the next year, I'm going to be stuck in the operational stuff. I'm going to have a job working for somebody else. Um, but a year from now, I'll walk away with a big bag of cash and, mm-hmm. um, and I can go and do something else. And if you just rationalize that equation, then you're good to go. Right. And yeah, so you've got to make sure that you're happy with the number on the other side. Let's get into business valuation. I mean, how did you arrive at that? How did they arrive at that? Yeah, that is such a, uh, a, a fluid thing. Now, in certain markets, it's not, especially like in public markets. Um, if you're buying for revenue or customers, then there's, there's market capitalizations and, 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 and ratios that are publicly known that you can apply to different industry segments to get what is reasonable mm-hmm. for valuation for your company. Now, none of my companies have ever been sold that way. They've all been sold because of some other emotional or business need that they had. They felt like we need that or we, yeah. You know, and sometimes it's just because we don't want our competitors to get it. We, um, we need that because if we just buy it, we can sell it all day long to, to the existing clients we have. That's a, it's just like found revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so those types of sales are absolute 
absolutely wonderful when you're on the sales side because you know you're you're selling something that is far more valuable to them than it actually is to you like if your yeah. business as a standalone thing might do a million dollars a year but to a larger company that can plug you into their sales and distribution channel or can mm -hmm. make it a 10 or a 50 or 100 million dollar revenue stream you know very very quickly that's what you're doing is far more valuable to them than it is to you. And then, then you're golden because you can then start to, you get that hope value is what we generally call it. It's this premium on top of what truly your business is worth based upon revenue or assets or anything like that. And it's the, the hope that, or the belief that if we have it, we'll be able to do something different, more competitive, generate new revenue, have some efficiencies that is really valuable to the buyer. And then, mm -hmm. and then you have, then you, then it's just kind of what can you get? Um, and by having a couple of people being interested in buying you, you have a market. Right. Then, <laughs> right. Now, way easier said than done. Way mm -hmm. easier said than done. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, how do you initiate this kind of thing? I, I, I take it in this situation, they came to you? Well, it started with more of a, how can we kind of have more of a organized partnership? Okay. And then because we did that. you're expanding value for them and their portfolio. Right. Okay. But that's but the way that I went about it is not unlike any other corporate acquisition that that might make sense. It's important mm -hmm. if you do have a desire to sell that you are deliberately thinking about your exit strategy, right? Mm -hmm. Who are the acquiring candidates mm -hmm. and why? What are their motivations? What do they get out of it? And then you as a CEO deliberately position yourself and you can do it by striking relationships with their business development people, the, the mm -hmm. corporate development guys or business dev guys that actually do these deals, um, focusing marketing efforts on the same niche so that you actually, like I did, mm -hmm. have a client roster that is relevant and overlapping with mm -hmm. somebody that might want to buy you and it gives you something to talk about, right? Think about right. the validation that that is. Like, right. wow, if this little guy was able to go and you know, work with uh, 30 of our clients, but we could work with three, we could make it work with 300 of them. Hmm. They then start connecting the dots for you, but you need to be deliberate about paving that path to, uh, to an acquisition. And, right. and is it rarely do you just kind of heads down in your business and all of a sudden the phone rings and says, Hey, I right. want to buy you. You know, you, you, as a CEO, it's part of your job. Yep. And, <laughs> and if, if exiting, if selling is, is, is what you, want to do, then you need to actually do that. You have to actually put the work into doing that and, and corporate partnerships and uh, forging relationships within those organizations and then help thinking about the business case for them buying you, you actually mm -hmm. help do that. Right. Makes them the, the light bulb go on, go on for them. And, and, uh, and then, then you start having an acquisition conversation. Okay. So get, get in front of them, be deliberate. Imagine, yeah, like you put some advertising up in their marketplace. You keep showing up in front of them. That's gonna, oh, that question. That's, that's going to give you. It's who are those guys, right? <laughs> I keep seeing them, and then yeah. uh, and then maybe engineer a couple of stories to be spread uh, around the the industry. Yeah, join their partner program. Go to their annual events. Uh, develop relationships. All that kind of stuff is is what is necessary to separate you from the noise and right. and and get into that. Uh, to have that conversation okay people are going to ask what what level of number are we talking about here in in total i don't need the exact number but uh, uh for for the for the total buyout 
of well for for my company or just yeah. in general yeah, for your, for your oh so yeah uh so the the most recent one was you know seven figures a year for three years okay nice so don't have to work if you don't want to <laughs> right and you like um, yeah i do and uh yeah so there's that and um and that's a little bit longer on the kind of the earnout range mm -hmm. and very because I mean, hell, you could pretty much say almost all of the value was 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 me because I was the mm -hmm. primary resource delivering it, and it was mm -hmm. all stuff I right. knew. I was the author of it all, so that so to a degree that you're not that, then your earnout can be shorter. Okay, and what kind of a time period are we looking at to lead up to from hey, I'd like to sell this business to okay, we have a deal and the money starts flowing. Probably two stages. One is is your preparation, your positioning, mm -hmm. you creating a market for yourself. Um, you know that can take, you know, easily a year or two, or you know, mm -hmm. or longer. You know, depending on, on on how successful, how quickly you're able to do that. So, but then once that that legitimate conversation starts about an acquisition, uh, the 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 practical steps is it easily six months if there's like a burning urge you know you're sitting in mark zuckerberg's backyard and he says hey um i want to buy you for 18 billion dollars you can kind of get that deal papered really quickly but failing that a typical process is going to be a while because there's lawyers involved and hmm. um and they're doing other things and that could take you know you know three months to six months would be normal longer than that deals that drag don't get done mm -hmm. so and it's kind of practically really difficult to do it in less than three, unless you just have a team of people that do it, just go into a war room and make it happen. So, yeah. And I, and I reason I ask is I want you to give the answer rather than me to say the answer, because I want people to hear it from somebody who has done it demonstrably right here. Uh, and that it's not going to be an instant thing. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and go, I want to sell my business and then get it done by the end of the week. It's not going to no. happen. Even with it, even with a broker, it's mm -hmm. going to take, oh, yeah at least a season and that's after you've done all that warm-up stuff um, that mm -hmm. fortunately for you you had built into the business along the way the process documentation the stuff that we do at cold star tech the, the process documenting and then uh, improvement right to get yeah. you to that point plus the positioning marketing the um, folks can go get the book oversubscribed which is a great book about that uh, concept that you were talking about, about needing two buyers, right? Or two potential buyers. You don't need a whole horde of people. In, and in fact, that will actually drive your price down, having too many people involved, especially with an offer. Uh, but if you've got a few, a small number of wealthy <laughs> buyers interested, that will drive the price up. So sure will. folks can go check out that book, Oversubscribe. Okay. Um, payment processing. Did they just send you a check every month or give you a bag of cash with a dragon or wire transfer or what? I'm curious. Yeah, wire, wire transfer. Wire. Okay. Just wire transfer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I and it was, uh, yeah, they were, there was an, an initial payment and then, um, and then uh, an annual payment uh, each year. Okay. We're, we're getting close on time here. Uh, I want to have you back again and we can, we can dig into uh, some other, directions in that. Uh, before we head out, I want to ask you one more thing. Yeah. Comparing this, the sale of this business with another business that springs to mind for you that you've sold. What are the 
compare contrast differences that, that highlight for you, maybe even just one big difference with say a, a different business with employees, for example, or maybe a, a, a building or something involved. The selling your expertise may be a, a smaller sliver. Um, I, I can't really say that it was harder. Mm -hmm. um, I can surely say that the process of selling and getting paid a, a, a good amount was infinitely simpler than any other financing or, or acquisition um, that I did or sale that I made uh, of, a, of a more you know, traditional company with employees and software and, and hardware or assets or capital. Uh, it, it just administratively, the level of due diligence that needs to be done uh, is uh, you know, significantly greater in a in a business with with employees and mm -hmm. and and assets and uh, uh, and whatnot, it it just takes longer, and you just have to recognize that it's going to take time in mind space, and that's why I say deals that drag don't get done. You you want you want to kind of compress everything up to a point where when you say go, you can just focus on doing what you need to do and get to a yes or no. You know, mm -hmm. no is the second best answer in right. this. The maybe right. is the worst answer or the limbo state right. is the worst circumstance. So, so for most people that are going to sell a traditional business with, with employees, um, it's a lot more, you know, just work and emotional mind space. So do everything you can to kind of compress that into a, all right, let's go get it done or not, you know, so. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Who should be talking to you today? What kind of situation should they be in? What level should they be at? What problems should they have? I, uh, I love working with, uh, with experts, consultants, people that kind of did what I did that want to do what I did. Hmm. Um, uh, people that do what I do that want to do what I did. So people that have an expertise and they might be doing 100,000 or 200,000 a year in their consulting business or services business. So freelancers, consultants, coaches, a lot of course creators too, um, and they want to break out of kind of that rut of a grind, and yeah. they want to go from a hundred thousand a year to a hundred thousand a month. How do you actually do that without, you know, giving your heart and soul? So uh, those are the people that uh, are my sweet spot, and I absolutely adore working with uh, with today. And uh, and they can reach me at rarecurve.com. And um, it's R-A-R-E, rarecurve.com. Because that's what, that's what we want to do is build some rare mm -hmm. curves for some entrepreneurs so they can grow quickly. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Hockey stick stuff. All right. My guest today has been Peter Hoskins of Rare Curve. I'm Jason Canigan, the founder of Cold Star Technologies. And I uh, look forward to talking to you in the next episode. Thanks for being here, Peter. Thank you very much, Jason. Appreciate it.